Forty miles east of El Paso is the tiny town of Tornillo, Texas. Yesterday morning, right around sunrise, 12 or 13 of us, Episcopal priests and laypeople from churches all over the country, gathered at the barbed wires of what has been reported to be the second largest federal detention site in the United States. Tornillo has been in the media recently because all of its detainees are under the age of 18. There are 2,700 people at Tornillo, many of them unaccompanied minors, some of them separated from their parents at the border, most of them, 70% of them or better, teenaged boys who are fleeing the gangs of Central America. 2,700 kids being held in tents at Tornillo, a facility that was built six months ago to accommodate 400, and now there are 2,700. We went to Tornillo because we wanted to see firsthand for ourselves, to the degree that that was possible, what was really happening at U.S. borders. We spoke with people who are responding on the ground on both sides of our border to this incredible surge of migration of folks from El Salvador and Honduras and Guatemala, three nations that are seeing an unprecedented rise in gang and drug-related violence. For young boys who don't want to be recruited by the gangs, fleeing unaccompanied to the United States is seen by their families as the only way for any viable kind of future. They spend weeks traveling on foot, they're processed at our borders, they're held in tents for months at a time while an already overtaxed immigration system seeks to find appropriate ways to respond. Something like half of these kids in Tornillo have sponsor families in the country who are ready to receive them, but for months now, they have been incarcerated. And government officials have not yet been given permission to tour the facilities and audit conditions there. All of this is costing taxpayers, you and me, $144 million just to keep this one tent city in operation. A story in town is that when the boys first arrived in Tornillo in June, they called the camp El Infernio because of the sweltering heat. When we were there yesterday morning, the desert temperatures were close to freezing, and we were about 15 feet away from 2,700 boys in tents. We all know things are bad right now, not just at our borders. The horror is everywhere you look these days, and we all know how it works, right? We're practiced consumers of political news. There's a lot of debate. There's a lot of politicking, there's a lot of earnest hand-wringing, and people of faith can and do come to very different conclusions about laws and policies and appropriate enforcement. That conversation is critical. I don't want to downplay the politics and the, the issues that are at stake here. But I am also of the opinion that framing human suffering as a partisan football is a sin. What I saw and heard this week was not a political issue. I saw people, I met people, terrified people who are fleeing violence in the hopes of a better life. That is an old, old story. It's actually what our sacred texts talk about. It's a story that goes back several thousand years to the day when Zephaniah and Isaiah wrote about a pathway through the desert where every valley would be exalted and every mountain brought low. This is a humanitarian crisis that we are facing, not a political one. 
There are thousands of people who are coming to U.S. borders every week. One organizer that we spoke with gets a text every day from ICE officials, lets him know how many people he needs to be prepared to receive in his facilities. Some weeks, that's as many as 2,000 people, 2,000 people a week, and that's one facility in one town. There is incredible heartbreak. There's incredible work that's happening. There's incredible mercy and healing that are happening at our borders on a daily basis. So I don't come back with a bunch of answers. After being on the border, I have a lot fewer answers than I came with. I know that locking up children is not the way of the gospel. And I know that as a Christian, my faith is pretty uncompromising when it comes to this stuff. All people belong to God. The mercy and compassion of Jesus do not discriminate between the documented and the undocumented. All people belong to God, which means all people are my brothers and my sisters. So to say, this is not my problem, is not an option that is available to Christians. We have to do better than this. We are called to do better than this. So we asked our mission partners in El Paso and in Juarez, what can we do? <laughs> seeking answers, seeking strategies, looking for ways to assuage our guilt by being a part of a solution. It's the same question that the, the crowds are asking John the Baptist this morning, not a prophet known for his compromised answers, and they're faced with a different kind of apocalyptic situation. What should we do? John is talking to the, the well-meaning citizens, the border patrol agents, the government officials, the law enforcement of his day, right? John's talking to soldiers and to tax collectors and good church people. And he says, the situation that you're facing is actually your responsibility. There is a way forward, and it will require commitment and patience and networks of people with the will to, to make something happen. John says, those of you who have two coats, share with someone who has none. That's actually not a bad place to begin addressing this question. If you've got more than you need, it actually doesn't belong to you. So we ask the same question, what should we do? The first thing that we heard from almost every mission partner we talked to was this, please pray for us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, we're doing that. We can, we can do more of that. But at a certain point, thoughts and prayers start to feel empty. And so then our partners were pretty direct with us, as direct as John is with his followers today. One, one guy said to us, you know, you all come down for a few days. That's great. What I need are people who can commit to like a month or two months, or three. We're understaffed. We need boots on the ground. You don't have to have like a bunch of skills. You don't have to speak Spanish. I just need boots on the ground, he says. The situation we're facing is not a local situation. It's not an El Paso problem. It's an American problem. And it's an American solution that will have to take place. The only thing that's going to make a difference, he says, is when Americans start waking up to this reality in a way that's deeper than likes on Facebook or donations of socks and toiletries. It is clear to many of us that it is time to step up our response. So how do you start that? We went to the camp. We went to Tornillo, 13 of us. We stood in a circle outside the barbed wire amid cotton fields and pecan orchards, and we prayed because that's what we were asked to do, as frustrating and helpless and empty as that felt. We took a breath, we shut our mouths. For priests, that's a thing in itself. 
We didn't even join hands. It was too cold. We just stood there, helpless. We tried to listen. The words that came were halting and tentative and woefully insufficient. Nobody had anything profound to say. It's been a long time since I've felt that viscerally ashamed at what was happening in my name. It's a situation like that where the words of confession are really the only appropriate words. We'll say them later this morning. Merciful Father, in your compassion, forgive us our sins, known and unknown, things done and left undone, the evil we have done and the evil done on our behalf. Lord, you have given these children into our care, my colleague Winnie prayed. You've given these children into the care of this great nation. They have come to us for freedom, and we have detained them. Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy. We prayed and we sang quietly and hesitantly. It was never much more than a sort of whisper. It was not a full-throated song of praise. It was a song of lamentation and grief. It was an Advent song that came to our lips, an old text from an old book of prophecy that many of us have heard our entire lives, a text so familiar that it runs the risk of being meaningless and banal in a situation like this one. Prepare the way of the Lord, we sang. Hearts breaking, prepare the way of the Lord, prepare the way of the Lord, and all people will see the salvation of our God. All people. That is the weirdness of Advent. That's the weird tension of this time of the year, the darkest night, the time when we're asked to take these courageous steps into an unknown situation, into darkness that terrifies us, the darkness of our own hearts, the border walls that we all throw up to keep the scary stuff in our lives at, at bay, the places where we grip and clench and hang on to power and privilege and control, the places in us that are fundamentally unwelcoming still, whatever scripture says, right? The schadenfreude and the avoidance, you know, at least this is happening to somebody else's kids and not to my kids. It's not just politicians in Washington. I know what it feels like to want to shut the door in somebody's face. I've done that. I've done it with good reason, and I've felt okay about it. Good fences make good neighbors, right? Good boundaries are what keep us free. That's what I tell myself. You can't solve every problem, you bleeding heart liberal snowflake. <laughs> I mean, this is true, right? This is true. And it's fair for us to receive that pushback. It's fair for us to learn how to hold it and not need to resolve it immediately. And yet in the midst of our darkness, in the smack dab of this four-week journey, pilgrimage journey to Christmas Eve, right in the moment when our hearts are beginning to break open with the pain of the world, I mean, I think we carry this trauma in our bodies, the stuff that is happening around us, the stuff that's happening in our own lives. I think we, we somatize it, we physicalize it, we carry pain and grief, and anger, and fear. And when we confront that, when we learn how to hold that, we're instructed, kind of glibly, to begin this process of learning what it would look like to rejoice. I mean, it's a strange moment to start singing, isn't it? In the darkest hour of the night, when your heart is close to cracking, the ancient word that lies at the root of this English word, rejoice, is a word that many scholars think originally had nothing to do with an emotion. It was a physical activity, right? Rejoice originally meant to jump. It meant to leap. 
It's a physical word. It's not an emotional word. It doesn't mean be happy, although it certainly doesn't preclude happiness and joy and excitement and exhilaration, ecstasy. All of those emotions might and do accompany the physical experience of opening ourselves to the act of rejoicing. Because rejoicing, as our ancient texts understand the word, is a kind of like surrender to the power of God who created our bodies. We give our bodies to God in rejoicing because God created our bodies to hold joy and sorrow, to hold heartbreak and exultation for deep grieving. That happens to us physically. So too, ecstatic rejoicing, first of all, happens in our bodies. Sometimes it happens in the same breath as the grief. According to ancient tradition, this third Sunday in Advent is Gaudete Sunday. That means rejoice in Latin. And it's that, it's that pink candle that you see in an Advent wreath, right? Three candles that are blue or purple, one candle is pink. That's this Sunday. For thousands of years, Christians have heard this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. Paul wrote this letter from prison. It's Paul's farewell letter. He knows that he is going to be executed any day. He's carrying the griefs, the scars of his imprisonment, the sadness of having to say goodbye to beloved friends. But rather than focus on the grief, Paul urges his followers in the letter to the Philippians 14 times to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, he says. Again, I will say it, rejoice. And then he says it again, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone because God is near. And then he says, do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Be honest about what you're feeling. Own your heartbreak. Take a step into the darkness of a lonely heart and have the courage to show God everything that's there, to let God show you everything that's there. And it's that moment, Paul says, that's the moment in which the peace of God comes upon you, a peace which passeth understanding, right? A peace that surpasses all reasonable expectation, a peace that it makes no sense on the surface of things. It depends not on circumstance or situation. It's not an emotion at all. It's a body experience, an embodied experience of wholeness and belonging, shalom, salam. That's Paul's way of describing the day of peace that dimly shines, a day that Zechariah spoke about a thousand years earlier when he urged his people not to fear, not to let their hands grow weak. I will save the lame, God says in Zephaniah. I will gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and their wailing into dancing. The ones who have walked for miles through the desert from exile in Babylon are set free in a new land to create a new life in a place that flows with the milk and honey of human compassion. That was consolation. That was promise. That was challenge. The promise of Advent is that our grief is not an impediment to our salvation. The grief is the road that takes us there. Because when we sit with it long enough, when we apprentice ourselves to her demanding regime, grief is the thing that motivates us to take action. The grief of Advent is the means by which our hearts break open so that God's salvation can find us. A salvation that connects us at an almost biological level, I think, with everything God has made. And when that salvation, when that peace, when that shalom finally lands in our bodies and connects us to other bodies, it grabs a hold of hearts and minds and like guides us, pulls us, like rejoices us 
into the knowledge and love of the liberating one. That's the way the ancients say that the last day arrives. That's, that's the real apocalypse, right? We've been talking about how do you survive this? How do you survive the end of the world? For the ancients, it's this day. It's the day that the peace of God lands in your body, the culmination of everything that is. This is what the universe was made for. The last day is also the first day. It's the first day of something new and different and wholly unlooked for, wholly unplanned. The end of the world is a threat and it's a promise. And the means of surviving it when it comes upon you, according to Paul anyway, is actually to start singing, which is not an emotional response. It's a physical response. Sing old songs, sing new songs, sing whatever song you can come up with, right? Whistle your way through the darkest night as slowly and, and achingly something begins to happen to your body. Something begins to stir. We pray this morning, stir up your power, O Lord. Stir up your power. And with great might, come among us. And because we are sorely hindered by our sins, by the sins of our world, by the sins that we are complicit in, because we are sorely hindered by this stuff, may your, may your bountiful grace and mercy speedily help and deliver us because we long for it. We can taste it. And with your power and grace, we can be a part of bringing it about on earth as it is in heaven.